This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Terror Talk. Welcome to our 400th show. That feels a little unbelievable Yeah, that it's been 400 episodes. But then if you think about it, <laughs> and if you look at the lists and lists of episodes that I keep, like the log of our episodes, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, mm-hmm. like, oh, I remember when we did that. You start to get the breadth of it, but we're, we're just happy to be here. Yeah. And that's a fun milestone, right? We, For sure. We like we're big round milestones. So today on the show, we're going to take a slight pivot or a, a different sort of approach to this. These these Wednesday shows are often and usually very true crime specific. And while we believe this topic actually is creating and maybe not creating, but supporting a subsect of certain kinds of true crime that are emerging. It's correlated in that way, but we did want to take a little bit of a pivot to a more heavily psychological topic and see how you guys like that. Because obviously one of the pillars of our show is psychology. And then we talk about true crime and horror within that. So here we are. Yeah. I'll hand it over to Kathy to introduce the topic. Great. Well, there was a um, an article that came out in the LA Times uh, in the last, it came out in May of this year. It, it's called Opinion, What Gen Z Teens Like Me Are Getting Wrong About Mental Health. And so I just want to first say that Gen Zers get a, lot, a bad rap a lot of times because I think it's you guys are kind of low-hanging fruit, right? We we're, we all get older and go, oh, it's so easy for you. You're complaining about this. So I just want to preface that it can't be easy to be a, a teenager or college-age kid in this world today, in this mm-hmm. country today, especially because I think a lot of what has happened through technology and the advancements of things so quickly really didn't give a lot of these kids a chance to live any differently. So I just want to preface that this is not this is not a an episode against Gen Zers, but more so what we are starting to see collectively because of the collection of technology, how fast it's moving, our easy access to things, and how that has played a role in our mental health mm-hmm. or our ability to just sort of sit and be without trying to get out of that feeling. Absolutely. And I just want to mention for those of you who might not be thinking about it, Gen Zers are members of a generation of people born between the mid-1990s and the mid-2010s. So we're seeing you know, everything from... 12, 13, 14-year-olds to into their 20s is is the age range you're looking at. So if you're born in the mid-1990s, you're obviously coming up on 30, I guess. Yeah, thank you for that. This article, I'm just going to read the 
quick two paragraphs just to get into that. And then I'm going to give you a, a, a few things to get us started on the conversation. So this, this individual says, I grew up with a mom who's a therapist, which meant that feelings move through the air in our home like oxygen. It's not that we talked about feelings all the time or that I'd say something about my day and she'd ask, how do you feel about that? Instead, it was more that no matter what I felt sad, worried, mad, confused, lonely, whatever. It was never something to fix or make disappear. The world didn't stop when I was unhappy or uncomfortable. It was never a big deal. I just have to feel whatever I felt, good or bad. And that, my mom believed, was the key to emotional health. So with that being said, how does this relate to some of our true crime episodes or um, some of our topics where we've related things like narcissism and sociopathy? I want to link this by stating that based on where we are in technology um, and the way that we discuss mental health is that we've somehow equated mental health issues with normal discomforts. Mm-hmm. And what this has led to is it's really creating a monster that's not allowing kids to feel uncomfortable. And when we're unable to feel uncomfortable and we don't develop the muscle or the mindfulness to be in a state of discomfort, this eventually leads to rage, entitlement, intolerance. And so when someone is in the capacity of, uh, or has the capacity of being rageful, entitled, um, arrogant, interpersonal styles, they will often go out into the world with carrying these things and then react to the normal discomforts that are part of being in society. And so what do I blame for this? Well, I blame technology. You know, technology is not all bad. We know this, but we also know we can't go backwards. Things now have been uh, made in such a way that we have whatever we want, when we want it, how we want it at our fingertips. So even something as simple as waiting in line, I have seen people get so reactive to the point where they will create a scene. Could be anything from, I've also experienced this as a psychologist doing assessments for what are called psychoeducational assessments where parents will literally say to me, I will pay you for an ADHD diagnosis so my child can get accommodations. What happens there is now you're asking me, which I, for the record, have never taken the money to do that, but I've had conversations with parents about why would you pathologize your child with something they don't have so they can get extra time or be able to take an exam in a room with nobody else in the room. Being a healthy adult means learning how to be in the world among all of the distractions and discomforts that are just naturally there. So there's been this overcorrection to never hold their child accountable. So if there's bullying going on, right, that parent will come in and say, I'm going to sue this school, Right. And I've seen this. I work with parents who um, their children are the ones who are being bullied and the the parents of the bulliers come in and bully the faculty of the school. Right. Like you're not going to knock my child down. Accommodations is the other one. And then the other one that I'm seeing quite a bit that I think really cheapens the experience for those folks who might be uh, more marginalized is when more privileged people and privilege is obviously very subjective to the environment that you're in. Anybody at any time can be subjugated. So it just depends on the power differential. But if we're talking about 
equating discomfort with feeling unsafe. I feel really unsafe right now. No, you feel very uncomfortable right now. And those are not the same thing. Right. I'm going to make a really broad stroke here because I'm, I, I don't have time on the show to connect the very little dots that would lead to this. But when we think about populations like incels, okay, these are usually young men who take a very uh, retaliatory, what they'll do is they'll act out on the fact that they have been uh, turned down or rejected by women who don't want to sleep with them. And they will use that as ammunition for the reason to hurt or harm or rape or kill women, mm-hmm. right? So how does that start? It starts with this intolerance of why am I not getting my way? I have feel rejected and I feel humiliated and now I'm uncomfortable and the world's going to pay for it. So again, I want to be clear that not every Gen Zer is going to turn into a serial killer. They're not always going to do something this extreme, No. but how are we linking it to what kind of world we're creating? Well, sit in the fucking discomfort. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I see quite a bit of right now is a bunch of things. Uh, one is that the youth that I come in contact with most are youth that have a diagnosable mental illness. They also have co-occurring severe trauma and they're in situations where those things would absolutely cause this inability to sit in your discomfort. So that's, that set aside. I also come into a lot of contact with youth that have a primary of oppositional and defiant disorder. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of defiance is normative as a teenager. And so a lot of times our job is to figure out what is this behavior normative? And so we need to educate parents about how it's normative and this is how you handle it and this is how you uh, parent and give consequences. Or is this something that is not normative and it goes above and beyond in the defiance and is escalating into uh, a functioning issue? So that said, I would say that what I'm talking about is sort of, I guess, the youngest Gen Zers, which would be the 13 to 18 or whatever right now, it strikes me that they were raised by either young Gen Xers or older millennials, which I find that would be an interesting thing to take a look at the parenting styles, because I'm often having to, we are often having to educate the parents in how to have consequence because what's happening is the teenagers are saying, I'm uncomfortable. And if they're in the mental health industry, they're, they're, if they're in the mental health world, meaning they've had a lot of services, they have learned to say, I feel unsafe in order to get an agenda that they're interested in. So I've got two kind of different kinds of youth. I've got youth that genuinely feel unsafe and are trying to harm themselves sure. all the time and are feeling unsafe and are t- attempting to kill themselves or self-harm. And then I've got youth that are using that for hospital seeking because they can't sit in being uncomfortable. Right. So it's like, I'm uncomfortable. I want to kill myself. I'm going to the hospital, but they don't, they aren't actually genuinely suicidal, but they're so uncomfortable that they know that they need to say something to get out of their out of current the dis- yeah, environment. Right. And and either one is valid. And I, I'm not saying that's not valid. Like, 
I can see that you're so uncomfortable with this current situation that you want to get out of here. And that's, and that's the only way you know to get out of your house right. for a few days. Right. I respect either thing, but they're different. They're very different. What I'm also seeing in the parenting is that I see the youth being able to terrorize their family. And what I mean by be, by terrorize is that they're holding them hostage. They're saying, I'm going to kill myself if you don't. I'm going to self-harm yeah. if you don't. And unfortunately, the parents haven't been educated enough in the, and this is what, you know, good programs will do is they'll educate the parents on how to use their skills to set boundaries and provide natural and logical consequences for one's behavior and allow the child to fail and be uncomfortable. And that's what I'm seeing is the parents aren't, aren't often able to allow their youth they to are be not. uncomfortable because they didn't learn to be uncomfortable. So I feel like it goes back farther. It does. Than, and that's what I'm saying. We kind of set this Gen up, Z, exactly. right? We set it up. And, and to real quickly just interject here in this article to Shannon's point, this is what this individual says. He says, but this isn't what I saw in many of my friends' families. Ironically, it was homes with no therapists in them where feelings were constantly monitored. If friends were upset that a teacher gave them a bad grade or they were left out of a social event, their parents would spring into action. First, they'd try to fix it by talking to the teacher or calling another parent. And if that didn't work, they'd try to cheer up their kids by letting them have extra screen time or distracting them with a trip to the mall or allowing them to take off for what schools started calling a mental health day. Yeah. I can tell you that I can theorize if it's a Gen X parent, I can tell you that I've witnessed that because so, and so older folks, you know, Gen Xers that have 20 somethings right now, that makes perfect sense to me because as a Gen Xer, I can tell you that we were raised by wolves. And so our instinct to protect our children and fight is a part of how we were raised because we were like left to our own devices until the lights went off yep. outside. Yes. And we weren't necessarily encouraged to talk about emotions because we were raised by boomers. And so it, there's this whole like generational thing that's happening here where Gen X is like, don't fuck with my kid. I will beat your ass because we were raised, you know, in the streets, so to speak. And I'm not saying that there aren't variations, obviously, of Gen X entitlement and how you were raised and how much money your family had. What I'm saying is that you were expected to suck it up and go forward in general. Like that was the culture is that we're not going to talk about our emotions and no one is coming to your aid. And so I think in in retrospect, that turned into, well, I'm going to give my kids the protection that I yeah. didn't get. And so then... The Gen X or millennial kids, it's like, now it's like those kids are like, my mom will save me because she's a badass. Yeah. And so I don't have to be uncomfortable. Well, absolutely. And and I also think too, and this is just, uh, again, where I blame social media and technology is we also just live in much more of a narcissistic society these days, at least outwardly. And so there are just, you know, 
more sense of entitlement. So my, my child's going to have this over your child, or I'm, my child's not going to have to go through that, or my child's going to be able to jump these hoops because we are unique. We are special. And I see this too. What I'd like to say on a positive note is one of the things I've noticed to be a major protective factor for kids. And, and as someone who teaches graduate school, they're obviously not kids, but they are young adults is anytime we have folks who are athletes, if a child is in a sport, and I understand not all kids, there's different ways of, of finding something like this, but at, at SC, we've had professional swimmers, football players, all that in our programs. There is a level of structure, healthy structure, and tolerating discomfort through playing a sport. Uh, we find this also with people who do yoga and other forms of mindfulness, that it becomes this really well-developed muscle that what I've noticed between my students who get pulled into the drama and the chaos of things versus the ones who don't, sometimes there are professional athletes in our program where they're like, oh, I don't even sweat that because I'm so used to doing this over here and literally having to sweat and be in pain and all this that I can get through these, this, this really hard exam without complaining. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you just on a personal note that I was put in sports and physical activity from a very young Mm -hmm. age because my stepfather was a physical educator and a kinesiologist at at Cal State Northridge. And so he, as soon as I had a relationship with him, he was putting me in sports. I was on team sports my whole young life, middle school, high school. And I can tell you that now when I do something physical, I have the tendency to have an athletic perspective about it. And so I can be uncomfortable. I can sweat and things hurt. And, you know, does that cause other issues where I may not report pain as quickly as I should to my medical professionals? Yes, that's, but that's also a Gen X thing too. Like I'm going to tough it out. Like I, you know, yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. like pain. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. I never got a band aid when I was a kid. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to just tough it out. But I, I totally get what you're saying is that an athletic perspective, I think, is one of the best things you can give a kid, in my humble opinion, yes. because they learn to lose and they learn to have pain and push through. They learn that pain is temporary. That's right. They learn, they learn that injuries are sometimes temporary. But that's just it, Shannon. You said it. It's it's wrecking. And even helping my adult clients recognize that like life's emotions and feelings are impermanent. Mm-hmm. We're going to go up, we're going to go down. We're going to go up, we're going to go down, and then we're going to go up again. Mm -hmm. And if you can spend time and get through that period, you know, we know this too with working with folks in recovery. The longer we're able to get them to extend that time, the muscle gets stronger and stronger, and they're like, oh, I don't have to relapse. I'll come out of this. And we need to be doing that with kids. And I think, unfortunately, there's been such an overcorrection that now this, what was initially put in place to protect, have smaller classes, allow kids a better learning experience, because I do believe a lot of that has been very helpful and giving kids more attention in the classroom, smaller class sizes. I do believe that that can be really helpful, but the overcorrection comes in with one little feeling of discomfort or quote unquote unfairness. My child is unsafe. They don't deserve this versus like my parents probably would have said something like, well, what the hell did you do? (laughs) You know? Oh yeah. They wouldn't be calling the school. For sure. There would have been some kind of balance. They probably would have heard me out, but, but you know, there's a context of there of, 
yeah, I totally get it. And I, and I think it's, it's just interesting how the culture changes because yeah, we didn't have safe spaces. Uh, we didn't have gaslighting. We didn't have all the, the word, the word, uh, toxic to describe people. And, and now it's, I think that article says something about how this generation that we're speaking about will be, has all those words and has all that fund of language and has mental health in their conversations, which is all a good thing, except now it's like one, somebody doesn't agree with you and now they're toxic and gaslighting you because they don't agree with you. It's like, no, no, that's called debate. Let's, let's like not agree with each other and also have feelings about that. We don't, and that's what you're talking about with narcissism because narcissism needs a mirror. Right. Narcissism wants a mirror that mirrors their beliefs. And sure, we always get hooked up with friends and, and lovers of people that we have similar ideas to. But if you cannot tolerate your friends and the people closest to you saying, yeah, that's not really the way I feel about it. I hear what you're saying, but I don't feel that way about it. Mm-hmm. And then say, oh, that's interesting. How do you feel about it? Instead of, oh, well, they can't be my friend anymore because they don't like, you know, gummies or whatever. Yeah. like, And, and for some of these younger kids, it is something that innocuous where it'll become, know, you know. It's not good. It's not good. So, you know, if anybody's listening to this, if, if you are a Gen Zer, if you have kids who are Gen Zers, just do yourself a favor and like, push through some of these things, you know, because I think when you do, when you're able to build that, then in situations where there is really a need to self-care, because there is that need, we have a better uh, gauge in, in when we actually then need to take, you know, like you were saying, Gen Xers, we were bad at asking for help. We've mm-hmm. had to learn that. Mm-hmm. Y'all need to learn how to get through some stuff. Self-soothing. So if I'm going to make it really black and white. Yeah. It's frustration tolerance. Yes, it's it is. How can I tolerate my frustration and have things in my toolbox that self-soothe me and also understanding the idea between uncomfortable and unsafe, like Kathy was saying, and then building resilience because that's what we've been talking about for 20 minutes or so is how do you build resilience with emotions? Well, you allow the pendulum to swing and then you realize it's temporary and you realize you can tolerate it. And you know that if you aren't having emotions is actually not the good thing. If you're medicating them or eating them or whatever it is you're doing or asking people to save you and becoming more victimized in your own life, you're not building that resilience of like, this is a shitty day, but tomorrow will be better. You will feel better if you can get through that. Yeah, it builds a lot of ego strength. Yeah. It builds a lot of confidence. And I see it all the time in young people where they realize, yeah, I did pretty good, didn't I? You know, and they're just realizing it for the first time because for whatever reason, their parents didn't take that tact with them. And so they're learning to do it. And that avoidance of emotion, I can understand that. I would avoid emotion too if I thought I was going to get stuck in it and I could mm-hmm. never get out of it and I didn't understand. And But also I think what you're talking about too is that overcorrection of the toxic positivity is yes. an issue. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about the series Beef. Yes, yeah. And although those people may or, or I don't think are 
Gen Z, it seemed, I think you mentioned that it seemed like a good example. Well, it's a good example of what happens when we have not allowed ourselves to fully process mm. either what we've been through. And I think that Ali Wong does such a great job. First of all, you know, the cast is entire uh, Asian American cast. And so she really does go into a lot of the Asian culture around repressing emotion and muscling through things. So this in this case, it's a little bit different because they do somewhat push through that discomfort, but they don't process then what that discomfort is. So mm -hmm. here's the balance, right? Like not tolerating at all or pushing through it and just pretending like everything's fine. And what ends up happening in this series without giving anything away is due to that repressed emotion and the, the two main characters have different reasons for it, but both grew up in Asian homes, is that the littlest thing out in society, someone pisses you off, now you've got road rage. Mm -hmm. Now you're pulling a gun out. Mm -hmm. Now you're threatening someone's life because, I don't know, you couldn't find the right thing on sale at Home Depot. Right. That's how the series starts. So, yeah, yep. you're not giving anything away. That's really how it starts. And I think it's very relatable for a lot of us of how mad we've gotten when there are little inconveniences based on something that's going on in our personal lives and mm -hmm. then somebody slights us in some way and then we take our rage out on them and, and you know hopefully most of us don't go to the links but that's the metaphor here yeah is it's like we feel rage what do we do with that rage and the first few episodes i think are a great example of how we externalize that rage for something that we're going through internally to try to soothe ourselves. Yep. When if we had coping strategies to soothe ourselves ourselves and not have to externalize it and more internalize it, then those kinds of things wouldn't happen. And so Kathy and I were talking before we started recording and Kathy, you were saying like, that's why that might be why we're seeing these increase an increase in these kinds of situations where somebody gets mad in the grocery store and we see on TikTok, you know, them slapping a stranger or something. Mm -hmm. Now, again, these Look what happened have, with the masks. Exactly. During exactly, COVID. Exactly. The, exactly. That's a great example. We were all under a lot of personal and internal stress. Mm hmm. We go out into the world and fear, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We go out into the world and get slighted in some way. Mm -hmm. And there's no frustration tolerance for that. And beef is a good example of that. It's also a good example of the arc that they go through in how getting to know yourself, getting to know others, and also living in whatever truth you need to live in that you're not already living in can be sort of the salve to to get more towards not externalizing those yeah. things with each other. I, that's kind of like a sum up of what I think. They no, I mean, and if you haven't seen the series, it's fantastic. And the other thing that I will just bring kind of to bring this all back to a, a true crime piece is when we look at school shooters, when we look at people who are shooting up Walmarts, when we finally get a profile these are not people who have schizophrenia or post-traumatic stress disorder. Much of what we find out is in some way, shape, or form, they have been a victim to rejection, humiliation, um, a lack of nurturing. And rather than providing a space when they were, a space was not provided for them at some point for them to be able to discuss these discomforts that then build and build and build and turn into 
this entitlement, we're seeing it with Koberger right now. We've seen it with some of these other folks in the, in the past that there is, because now they're calling Koberger an incel, it builds over time. And, and, and what we know about risk is if, if we're looking at this from a primary prevention, if a child from an early enough age is given a space to discuss these rejections and these experiences that they're feeling, they have somewhere to put that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't bottle up. It doesn't become beef. Mm -hmm. So whether we're looking at someone who's muscling through it or shoving it down or not given a space, or we're looking at someone who just doesn't want to deal with discomfort at all, to me, it can all lead to the same behavior. Yep. Over time. Absolutely. Thank you guys. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed a little bit of a different tact we took and happy 400th episode to us. That's right. (laughs) This has been the 400th episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.